Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly women's agenda podcast. In our very first episode for 2024, we are going to go through what we've got ahead of us for the coming year, including a record-breaking year for democracy and a chance for some new women leaders around the world in 2024. Plus, we will discuss an Oxfam report showing that Australia's richest people have been making $1.5 million an hour since 2020. How do we get our heads around that? Thank you for listening. We are recording this episode of The Crux on the 18th of January, 2024. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm joining you from Gadigal land and I'm joined by my co-founder and Women's Agenda editor, Tala Lamba. Tala Lamba. (laughs) It's going well. Tala Lambert. How are you, Tala? I am well, Ange. I feel well rested. It's been a good little break and I am keen to get back into work and away from my children again. What about you? Uh, yeah, like well rested, I guess. Yes. <laughs> and yes, keen to get back into things. I mean, we have been back into things for a while, but we're trying to make it a little bit more official and do some of our regular weekly tasks, which includes this podcast. So we are straight yeah, into very it. exciting. Um, yes. So wins for this week. I would have to say that without even blinking Mar Gasserin, who made history as Spain's first parliamentarian with Down syndrome, has got to be my my win for the week. And her election comes after decades of Mar battling for people with intellectual disabilities to be given a seat at the table. She joined the Conservative People's Party at 18 years old and um, last May she was added as the 20th name on the list of PP candidates in Valencia's elections. So her election was just incredibly momentous, but she says pretty simply that she wants to be seen as a person, not for her disability, and as the first person with Down syndrome to join a regional or national parliament. According to Spain's Down Syndrome Federation in Europe, she's definitely blazing a trail for others to follow after her and squashing the barriers we still know loom large for anyone with a disability in politics, but particularly anyone with an intellectual disability. So this was such a an awesome story that we covered this week. And I just think, you know, these are the kind of moments that make real change. And yeah. That was a good one and um, it got a really nice response and a lot of people were reading that story, which is good to see. So people wanted to see it, wanted to read it and we saw it on social media, just so many positive comments and things like that as well. So Yeah, it'd be nice to see a bit more of it in Australia, to be fair. Yeah. So my win, so obviously the Australian Open is in full swing. Uh, So, (laughs) And three former Australian Open champions have returned to playing in the tournament after having a baby in the past couple of years, including Naomi Osaka, Angelique Kerber and Caroline Wozniacki. And a lot of people, a lot of news pieces and commentators are calling this out, saying and celebrating it and highlighting the fact that this has happened and saying, you know, this is just a, a great win and everything like that, which I absolutely think it is. But then, you know, some naysayers are saying, well, we don't make a big deal out of male athletes becoming new dads. It's kind of getting annoying that we're hearing this. And I know, Tali, you've written about this previously too. I am very much on the side of let's call it out and celebrate it. And it is 
like I want to hear about it because it is so inspiring to see um, because we do know that it is a huge and significant physical feat to be able to return oh to God. just getting out of bed in the morning, let alone <laughs> any kind of professional form required uh, to be competitive after, you know, carrying a child for so long and after going yeah. through childbirth and also while dealing and adjusting to life with a newborn and sleepless nights and all that kind yeah. of thing. So I think it's a great achievement and I'm calling it, I guess, a win for women as it's a trend that we've been seeing more across different sports in recent years, including like definitely in tennis. Mm. And it really highlights what can happen with, you know, sporting careers and athletic careers when women have the support and when they have the opportunity, when they make that, you know, when they have the choice as well, obviously, but when definitely when they've got you know teams in place and things like that to be able to support them to return to playing form. A hundred percent. Yeah. I wrote this one off the back of Nomi Osaka because She's returned. She gave birth. It was only six months ago. And I liked her, like the vulnerability that she expressed Mm. in her interview following her round one defeat, which she was clearly disappointed by. But she just said that, you know, maybe she's placing too high expectations on herself for now and she's going to keep working at it. And um, obviously, you know, she's got this schedule ahead. She's keep going. And she's saying that she needs to be a little kinder to herself. But she's also been really open about the training that she's had and the fact that she does have a really big team helping her to make it happen. It's not, you know, every day. Most of us who who have that kind of team and support available, in her case, yeah. she does and she's saying it and that's how, you know, she's back, back at the Australian yeah. Open now. I love her. But I also, yeah, look, I'm the same as you. I think this is not the same as other double standards that face men and women. When we celebrate women for returning to elite sport after childbirth, it's a very different thing than, you know, we're not we're not saying because you've become a parent it's now impressive that you've returned. We're saying that it's super impressive that after giving childbirth and, you know, the the huge physical struggles that can come with that and, you know, having had two children and still sporting a, a <laughs> birth hernia, you know, I know, you know, what can happen and I know you've had, you know, other kind of birth injuries. It's very common like for people to go through lots of different things after birth and it's really hard to get back to that kind of physical peak. So for women to be able to do that, like women like Katrina Gorey of the Matildas who I wrote about last year, but, but you know, Naomi Osaka, Serena Williams, like these are huge incomprehensible feats in a, in a way. So I think it's absolutely fine and perfectly normal for us to be shining a light on that and celebrating it for what it is Mm. and hopefully it does encourage more women who are elite sports people to go look that's that's the path I want to take you know it's not this isn't where my career ends after having a child I can go on and and get my my body back to that peak performance and but it is it's a, a huge challenge to do so. Mm. I might just share one more little thing about Naomi Osaka because she did this really great interview with Glamour magazine where she's really leading a campaign for paid parental leave in the United States. But um, she made a comment about pelvic floor health after giving birth. So first of all, she was back to training 15 days after giving birth. Okay, that's for her to do and that's great. (laughs) And I'm sure she was kind of set up to do that. That's fine. Not for everyone. But she talked about the fact that giving birth like was destroying her pelvic floor and she thought like what she needed to do was like just thousands of sit-ups and just start doing sit-ups. And that is not what you do. And I would have probably thought that too (laughs) after my first child. 
And I just thought that was good, like someone at that level. It highlighted, I guess, how much opportunity there is for more information about women's health, I felt. Because yeah. if someone like Nomi Osaka didn't have that until her team came in and said, no, actually you need to do really deep kind of core work and stuff like that, then it sort of says there is so much potential and opportunity to get those messages out to more women. And there's a real, you know, there's just a gap in the knowledge there. So yeah, yeah. that was nice yeah. to see too. Absolutely. Okay. So our next story this week is one that you've reported on, Ange, and 1.5 billion people are expected to vote in at least 64 national elections this year, plus the European Union election. Historically and currently, women very rarely hold the top spot of power, and there are very few women in comparison to men running nation states, as we know. Ange, we know there are several women in the running for power in national elections all around the world. Do you have hope for a new era of women's leadership? Like I think that there should be this new era of women's leadership and with this sort of you know year of democracy, you'd think that if any year was going to help that happen, that it would be this year. And we are at a point where just 15 countries currently have a woman as head of state and 16 with a woman as head of government. Just over a quarter of parliamentarians were women in 2023 across the world. But, you know, despite half the world living in countries that are due to vote in some kind of election over 2024, the writing says it's still not going to happen. I mean, some of those mm. elections already, I mean, they're just sham elections anyway, like the you know, presidential election in Russia, like um, I think we can all predict who's going to win that one. Um, we've obviously got, I mean, this isn't Who a is sham it, election. Ed? I, I don't know. Like, no, the United States presidential election, sorry, I'm not going to say that's a sham election, but obviously there's a lot of few issues that we're seeing and we are very much mm. likely to see a Joe Biden, Donald Trump mm. sequel um, despite Nikki Haley's best efforts to be the Republican nominee doesn't look like it's going to happen. So this is, you know, it's it's happening, but it's we're just it's still <laughs> so just bloody so slow, isn't it? It's so, it's so slow. bloody and it's slow. Just, and it's despite the fact that this 2024 is obviously hugely consequential in terms of, you know, world peace, uh, you know, conflict mm-hmm. in the Middle East, continued conflict in Europe with Ukraine, Russia. Obviously, we, we haven't really gotten far enough on negotiations around climate action and reducing global emissions. We haven't gone as far as we need to go. There's the issues around AI. There's uh, growing misinformation as well and how we're going to get a hold of that. And So there is so much at stake this year. And you think if ever there was a year to get women as those as head of country, as elected heads of state, then this would be it because imagine all those women at the negotiating table and and helping to, you know, have their voice and possibly to raise the issues of women and girls in those negotiating rooms as well. I don't think, I mean, it's not to say for a second that women, you know, all women who who do get to lead a country are suddenly advocating for the rights of women and a feminist and that kind of thing. That is certainly not the case. But there is research to suggest that when they do become leaders and when we do get more female parliamentarians that things like reproductive rights, things like women's workforce participation, closing gender pay gaps, looking after women's health, girls' education, those issues get much more attention when we do have women parliamentarians in place. So representation does matter. There are a few bright spots that I wrote about this week. Like it looks pretty, it looks like Mexico is going to get their first female president and both of those candidates there across the two parties that they 
both, I, I don't know if they'd call themselves feminists, but you look at their policies and they are definitely progressive in terms of women. So there are, and there are other bright spots as well, I should say. So there, there will be some firsts still this year, but it's not going to be a monumental shift. So much shit to fix up that we really need women to do. It's really a hard pill to swallow. Like, I mean, you and I have been doing this and reporting on these stories and these statistics for you've been doing it for 11 years. I've been doing it for eight years. Like, I think it's disappointing to know that in that time, in over a decade of women's agenda reporting on these issues, that not much headway has actually been made overall. And like, that's a big period of time to, to not be making any traction. Wow, on that positive note, I know. On let's talk next. about how much Gina Reinhart made. She's doing well. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> From one positive story to the next positive story, um, which let's is what talk. this podcast is all about. So <laughs> on to our next story. And a new report from Oxfam has found that the combined wealth of Gina Reinhart, Andrew Forrest and Harry Triggerboff has more than doubled since 2020, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Since then, the billionaires have made, on average, $1.5 million per hour since 2020. I would really like to make $1.5 million an hour. I'd like to make $1.5 million in, you know, 30 years. <laughs> but billionaires around the world are almost $5 trillion wealthier than in 2020. And as much as I laugh, it is incredibly daunting and disgusting when you think about that and you think about what we're actually dealing with and contending with in the world that we need to fix with money and this kind of ridiculous economic disparity exists. So to put a figure like $5 trillion into perspective, CNN made the comparison that if you start spending a million dollars every single day since Jesus was born, you still wouldn't have spent a trillion dollars. How did you feel when you saw these figures in Oxfam's report? I mean, I, I wasn't surprised. Maybe I was surprised by the 1.5 million an hour. I think that's a really good way to look at it and compare it and just sort of consider the extremes of wealth. Because like you say, I mean, that would be nice to work. You could work an hour a year and you'd be very, like you'd be pretty <laughs> well off and very be living a, a, a good life. So, so I, I mean, I think it is really problematic and it goes back to what you were saying, Tyler, about, you know, you'd think that we would be further along <laughs> on these sorts of issues, but actually the past few years has just seen the wealth divide get bigger and bigger and it is hugely problematic. I mean, not only when we consider like the extreme ends of poverty versus the extreme ends of wealth and just, you know, the fact that a handful of people or very few people live in those extreme ends of wealth compared to the millions, if not billion, living in extreme forms of poverty at various times. Like it is so mm. disgusting. Also in terms of how much influence those with this level of power and money can have over everything else, over every other institution, but also in terms of what it says, I guess, for democracy, going back to that again, because you can understand how even in healthy, thriving democracies, which we might say the United States once was, you could see how those who don't feel like they have access to a middle class life or, you know, a modest form of living or a, a decent paying job or work with dignity, that kind of thing, those who don't feel that they have access to that, you can see how they can start to 
not have much interest in uh, democracy, which we can also understand as well. So I think like when we look at the wealth divide, it's not just the mm. sickening feeling how much people are earning, but actually what that divide is doing to societies and the basic contracts that we have, uh, social contracts that we have and that we think that we're living by when actually, well, the system is decidedly and disgustingly unfair and understandably there are some people who will never be able to edge into not just those extreme ends of wealth but even into you know, more simple wealth or even into being able to buy a home. I mean, we we, can't. I mean, in Australia last year, you know, 3.7 million households struggled to buy enough mm. to eat. And we had 350,000 additional households in 2023 alone experiencing food insecurity. We are one of the most privileged countries. When you think about that happening just domestically, imagine how jarring it is when you kind of contrast that with what's going on in Gaza, in Syria, in sub-Saharan Africa. And we know that we could eradicate poverty so quickly if we didn't have this kind of wealth divide, if we were actually funneling money into the right spots. And it is, yeah, as I say, even though you can laugh about it, it is still so, it's such a hard pill to swallow, like even as a, an ordinary human living in Australia, as a very privileged human living in Australia, you know, I think it's it's just a really hard one to look at and go like, yeah, that's reasonable. Mm. We are clearly doing something incredibly wrong here. I always think like, um, I mean, it's one thing in terms of private wealth and these billionaires, but also when it comes to to tax and who's paying tax and as we, we've also seen there's, you know, a lot of corporations in Australia that are not paying that much tax, if any tax at all. And that we've seen also when you put the figures in perspective around things like we'll look at, you know, the call to get a billion dollars a year to be spent on ending violence against women and children. And that seems like a, a big amount. And isn't that great? Let's push for that. But then it's like, well, actually that is so minuscule, you know, in terms of the full wealth that we're thinking about that these billionaires have or Another one I was looking at last year in terms of the stage three tax cuts, which are also coming this year, which the modelling shows will not be favouring women at all. But again, to think about how, you know, 11.3 billion was announced over four years to offer, a, you know, a pay increase for aged care sector workers. And it looks great. It's like $11 billion. That's amazing. But actually that doesn't go very far and that's really just a you know a slight pay increase for aged care workers and to think about again all in yeah. the context of what these people make yeah. I just think it's yeah. it's incredible I hope that we can have I mean, I like Oxfam always puts these reports out they're great and but I hope we can have a stronger conversation about the stage three tax cuts which I think we will over the coming months particularly going to the budget and particularly with pressure on the Albanese government on the cost of living crisis and that kind of thing because we need to be rethinking a lot of things and that seems like the the easiest place to start. It's frustrating the amount of pressure that that falls on government and politicians to to kind of adhere to the status quo really like it because those with power and privilege and money are the ones that that have, you know, the the capacity to do that and they can really make things entirely immovable. Like it's just yeah, I don't know what to to expect there but absolutely I think we need to be having some harder conversations and changing what is going on at the moment. 
So I know that throughout this episode, we have obviously shared a little bit of forward looking over 2024, but um, we wanted to just finish on some other expectations regarding what is to come this year. Tala, what are your some of some of your expectations ahead? Are you feeling optimistic, pessimistic? Where where are you, and what do you what are you looking forward to? I feel like I'm feeling realistic. Like I have a, a lot of hope for what's happening around women's health, and I know that that's a space that we're very vested in. Obviously, with the reporting that we do, but we have some some really exciting events planned around women's health for 2024, and you know we're working with some really enthusiastic partners. I think that in recent years, there have been some really great policy developments in women's health. Clearly, we know that there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done across the board. And there are so many issues that are still routinely sidelined that we're not talking about. And I guess our aim as a news publication dedicated for women is to really make sure that we are having that conversation to normalize so many of these topics and to bring them into the mainstream. And, you know, I feel really confident about the partners that we're working with as well, that they share that kind of same ethos. And that's really exciting for me to see. So I think in terms of optimism, that's the space that I have huge optimism for this year. And, you know, I'm really excited about a lot of other things. I'm really excited about what's um, evolving in women's sport and yeah, look, I think there's a bit to be hopeful um, about, but I am, I think just having had this conversation as well and looking at some of the statistics around women's leadership still, uh, clearly we know there's a lot of work to be done in, in other industries and spaces. So yeah, realistic, Ange, realistic. How about you? <laughs> Realistic, I know. It's um yeah, I won't get caught up on, you know, international relations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another well, look yeah. back at, you know, democracy and AI. There's there's a lot of it. It's just yeah. I but I think it's important also. I know it's not like the easiest topics to keep abreast of, but I think it is important that we we do. We do try to understand what's happening globally and think about how that might be impacting us here in Australia and how that might put things um, under threat here in Australia as well when it comes to you know, things like the faith that we have in our own electoral system and stuff like that. We really want to protect it. But um, a really positive thing, I guess, is uh, coming up with WIGIA, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, and the fact that they'll be publishing the gender pay gaps of employers on February 27th. And I think that, you know, transparency is a positive thing in this light because the gender pay gap hasn't closed and it should have closed. And the fact that companies will now have to answer to the pay gaps they have, to their own team members, to the media, to prospective team members in the future as well, um, I think we'll start to see more taking um, greater steps to try and where they can really address those pay gaps immediately as they absolutely should. So that is coming on February 27 and that will be any company with more than 100 employees, their gender pay gaps will be will be published for everyone to see and for us to do a lot of talking about. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> I say, I mean, I say it like a positive, but it's not necessarily a positive. It's not going to look good, but at the same time, the transparency aspect is a positive because this will give a real sort of kick up the ass for, for these employees to do more. Um, so that is it for The Crux, the Women's Agenda weekly podcast. Thank you for listening. A reminder that you can catch up on all the stories that we are discussing 
on our website at womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. And with that newsletter, we'll also keep you up to date with some of the other things that we are doing this year, including around women's health, which Tyler touched on there. So thank you for listening.